This is Brian Kabatek along with Shant Karnikian back with Civil Action, where each week we try to cover relevant cases that are important to you and your practice for plaintiffs practicing in California predominantly or interested in the law in California. We cover California Courts of Appeal, California Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit, United States Supreme Court, cases that are interesting and should be interesting to plaintiff lawyers. So we have five cases today. Uh, We have a couple of federal cases. The first one is a case that has to do with certification for purposes of a class settlement, a nationwide class settlement. Then we have a case from uh, the California Court of Appeal for the 4th District that has to do with duty to defend an additional insureds in an insurance case. Uh, Then we have a Ninth Circuit case that has to do with decertification and standing and the strict requirements for standing. And then we have a UCL claim in an employment case, and that leads to a very interesting outcome. And lastly, we have a very fun case that has to do with civility in the law and uh, motions to get relief from default. So what's our first case today, Sean? The first case is the Hyundai and Kia fuel litigation cases. And that was a case that went up to appeal on the, from the, uh, or in the Ninth Circuit. Complicated civil procedure here question for Super, you, Sean. Yeah, what yeah. is en banc? Uh, when the entire panel, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal... Panels. Not technically the entire panel, 11 judges selected by a random of sitting active judges in the Ninth Circuit here a case. So a full panel of 11 judges. A full panel of 11 judges, okay. correct. Yeah, so so big, big decision here, very complicated history. So basically it involves a nationwide class action settlement arising out of misstatements made by two auto manufacturers, Kia and Hyundai, regarding the fuel efficiency of their vehicles. Right, that they, the allegation was that they lied on their stickers about their fuel efficiency and that as a result of that, these class actions followed. And there turns out to be a settlement of the class actions. The class action cases, as most class action cases do, either get dismissed or settled. Very few actually go to trial. This one resulted in a settlement that had a lump sum payment, a dealer service debit card, enrollment and reimbursement program, uh, and a new car purchase certificate is the different benefits you could take. And apparently at the time the case was argued, uh, there was about $140 million that had already been paid. So at first glance, not a terrible settlement. It's not like they're selling the class down the river or anything like that. No. And, and well, I mean, it's always hard to say $140 million sounds like a very large number. Actually, what I thought was striking about this case was the amount of attorney fees were relatively low given the fact that there were so many firms involved. You get these in class action cases where it's just a, a symphony of lawyers involved in a class action case. There was something like 28, 29 firms involved. The largest fee award was $2.7 million, and the fees went down to um, you know, five, six digits for, for some of the smaller firms, I suspect. What happened after the settlement was entered into and the approval motion was made was uh, some objectors popped up. Five consolidated um, appeals came after those objections. With objectors, objectors, right? right. So let's so, talk a little bit about objectors. What are objectors in class action cases? Objectors are people that show up and on behalf of class members, they're typically attorney-driven, but on behalf of class members, they come in and object to the settlement and say that the settlement's not fair, adequate, the attorney's fees are too much. And in all fairness, there is a wide spectrum of, of objectors. And I'm not categorizing these objectors in this case any particular way. 
But the types of objectors that you find, at one end of the spectrum, you have objectors who have no legitimate grounds to object, that they're just trying to shake down people for fees. And on the far other end of the spectrum, there are people who make objections for political purposes to try to advance an agenda against class actions. And in the middle, there are people who have very legitimate class action objections. They maybe were involved in the case. They don't like the settlement. And conceptually, it's an important part of class action practice. Much like everything in litigation, I guess there's people or uh, decisions that serve to safeguard our system, and then there's ones that are frivolous and and really hurt our system. So um, over here, there were substantive objections to the class action, and and there was five consolidated appeals uh, raising challenges to class certification that ultimately led to this thing uh, ending up before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. And there was a large number of objections that were generally made, but I think the most interesting objection was this was a national class action, and it was being settled based upon, it looks like, predominantly California law, right? Right. And the uh, Court of Appeal, uh, spoiler alert here, ultimately they remanded this, they reversed the class certification for purposes of settlement, and they remanded the case back down to the district court. And one of the main things that they held, as you mentioned, Brian, was that there wasn't enough analysis of the impact of potentially varying state consumer protection laws. So you're talking about the Court of Appeal below before the en banc hearing. That's well. No, the this court also said that there wasn't enough analysis of um, varying state laws. Then why does the opinion say affirmed? The, I'm sorry. The court of appeal denied. Uh, the court of appeal reversed the class certification. Have you read the case, Shant? Maybe. Maybe it's like I don't the first day the of law school for you, and you haven't actually read the case. What happened is the en banc court hearing the entire case and considering the issue, and particularly the most important issue to me, which is the multiple state issue, uh, the en banc affirmed the district court. That means they upheld the district court's finding, certifying the case, and certifying the settlement. Right. So that's the lowest court's finding. They affirmed that. Correct. And they've, they've specifically held that the district court performed an admirable job of sifting through this case. But I think really um, the two interesting issues we should talk about in our time here is the denial of attorney fees to the objector and the national um, class status that they gave without doing an analysis, a state-by-state analysis of the, um, the law in the various states. And how does uh, objector fees work? Well, generally an objector comes forward and says, you know, I brought benefit to the class, I was able to assist the class, I made it a better settlement, it's better for the class members, or I brought up an important issue that had to be reviewed. And here, I thought the Ninth Circuit was very dismissive by saying that the objectors didn't add any new legal argument, yet that's hard to say when you've got a multiple-page opinion analyzing the very important legal questions. So here, I think the objectors at least had an important legal issue. Um, I usually bring in a class action don't like objectors because they're getting in my way of trying to get the, the work done. But here, they at least help define an important issue of law. So maybe maybe they were entitled to fees. And this isn't one of those where it's uh, frivolous or just trying to extort more money out of the settlement or trying to get their, uh, their objector. Right. I'm hung up on the fact that the court said the objectors didn't add any new legal argument, yet this is obviously an important position and opinion that they publish on this very significant legal issue. So the other issue is the nationwide treatment. 
Yeah, over here you have a uh, class action, nationwide class action, brought under CAFA, the Class Action Fairness Act, and uh, invoking Rule 23, which governs class actions on the federal level. Um, and you have different state uh, consumer protection statutes. But over here, they mostly used California's uh, consumer protection statutes to kind of analyze the merits of the claims here and and ultimately conclude that certification should be granted for settlement purposes. So four judges of the 11 dissented. That's right. And their dissent was really not that the issue here about the underlying facts of the overstating the fuel efficiency wasn't significant. It's just that it really focused on whether or not there was a rigorous analysis, whether or not they considered the law of the different states, and whether or not um, the, the settlement under various state laws were appropriate under the circumstances, right? Because there's two, two, two elements of class actions that kind of invoke the varying state laws, and that would be predominance and commonality. You need questions that predominate, both questions of law and fact, and the questions of law here would be the application of these facts to different states' consumer protection statutes, and you need commonality. You need claims that are common, and if these claims would presumably be brought under different states' um, consumer protection statutes, you need to do an analysis of whether or not they meet those um, predominance and commonality so requirements. So at the very end of the dissent, can wind this up, but at the very end of the dissent, the dissenters wrote that um, they didn't like the fact that uh, courts sort of lean towards approving class certifications when both parties are involved in the settlement, when there's a settlement, and which I don't find necessarily to be true. I find even in class action settlements, the courts to be very exacting its analysis and review. And then they point out that defendants are relieved of significant liability and class counsel are amply rewarded for their efforts. So I I thought that was a cheap shot. Uh, And then they go on to pretty much invite Supreme Court review, which always scares me in class actions. The highly reported case was reported in the general news as well. Uh, So stay tuned. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the United States Supreme Court take a look at this case. Go on to our next case, Sean. Next case is McMillan Homes Construction versus National Fire and Marine Insurance Company coming out of the 4th District Court of Appeal. And this has to do with the duty to defend and additional insurance. So McMillan is the general contractor here that hired a roofing company called Martin Roofing. And part of the contract between McMillan and Martin required that Martin, the subcontractor to roofing company, have a general liability insurance policy and name the general contractor, McMillan, as an additional insured. And is this common in these situations, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. You see this in construction cases all the time. And of course, what happened here is completely predictable. The homeowners whose homes were built bring an action for construction defect against the home builder, McMillan. Uh, McMillan, uh, among other things, tenders it to the insurance company for the roofing contractor. And that insurance company, the defendant in this case, National Fire, refused to defend. So let's take a break here and talk briefly about the duty to defend under an insurance policy in California. The duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. And to get even more basic than that, what does that mean? Duty to defend is the insurance company defending a party that's being sued in a lawsuit, whereas the duty to indemnify is at the end of that lawsuit or during the pendency of that lawsuit or maybe even prior to the litigation – 
to settle or to put up money to settle the claims that are being made or to satisfy judgment. So an insurance company has a duty to defend if there's any claim in the four corners of the complaint which is arguably covered at all by the insurance policy, right? And it's one of the few areas in the law where there's actually a bright line rule. And that bright line rule is that if you fail to defend, if you're an insurance company, you fail to defend, and you had any obligation to defend, you're on the hook for the whole thing. The whole judgment, whatever result comes about, not right. even just the judgment, consequential damages potentially as well. Potentially, absolutely. And um, it's, it is a bright line rule, and it applies in these cases. So in this case, the carrier refused to defend, and the basis for the carrier's refusal to defend is the care custody or control exclusion. Why so, don't you so the, the, Yeah, the carrier believed that the exclusion in the additional insured uh, endorsement uh, said that it doesn't cover damage to, prop, quote, property in the care, custody, or control of the additional insured, end quote. So, so the theory here is one company has an insurance policy. The, the subcontractor, a roofing company, has an insurance policy. They add the general contractor as an additional insured, which basic, basically says that the additional insured gets some of the benefits of that insurance policy if something goes wrong. But there is an exclusion that says that if the damage arises out of property that's in the care, custody, and control of the additional insured, then the additional insured can't avail itself to those benefits. So let's say like a vehicle that was being driven by the general contractor causes some type of injury to somebody. The roofing company's insurance company doesn't want to be on the hook for it, rightfully so. But over here, it's a lot closer of a call, and ultimately the Court of Appeal taps into some other precedent and and case law here dating back many decades, actually, to 1978 from a case called Home Indemnity Company versus Leo Davis and says care, custody, or control exclusion requires exclusive or complete control. And they find that analyzing the facts here, the as between the general contractor and the roofing company, they shared control over the roof. So while most of our listeners, this isn't going to be a big issue to them about the care, custody, and control exclusion and the exclusivity, I think it's an important case because it's a good reminder about the duty to defend. The duty to defend is different than the duty to indemnify. It's also a good um, reminder because we do look at the reasonable expectations of the policyholder, of the insured. And here, if you really believed the insurance company's point of view, the general contractor would never have any insurance coverage at all for the very thing that they wanted to get insurance coverage for. Right. They, the court pointed out, like we said before, that how uh, broad the duty to defend is. They pointed out that in order to establish that um, they don't have to defend, they have to show that there is no potential for coverage. And that's from an old case called Party, and I'm sure there's a ton of other cases. Right. Um, but beyond that, that. beyond that, Sean, I just think it's important to remember that people buy insurance for a particular reason. And when you're looking at the reasonable expectation of the shirt, you, you don't look at anything, any explanation. But if it is a reasonable explanation, and you also look at the fact of how the policy should be interpreted, you look at the plain meaning of the language, you look at factors like that. And in this case, they looked at this and they said, come on. The, the, the exclusion that the insurance companies advocating in this case would basically render the policy illusory. That's a new word for you, Sean. Right. You want a minute so you can write right. that down? Illusory. Can you, illusory can you use today? that in a sentence, please? Yes, your job here is illusory. <laughs> That's great. Um, no, but really, there's no point in having that additional insured requirement um, or that provision if they wouldn't cover under something like this for this type of scenario. 
All right, let's go on to the next case. What's the next case you got? Next case is NEI Contracting and Engineering versus Hansen, coming from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. And when we were talking about this case earlier, Sean, I think you referred to this case as, as what? Just one of those facts where you demonstrate how litigation gets out of hand? Yeah, this is a perfect example of litigation or people being petty, litigants being petty. Um, because this, let's give it some context. NEI Contracting is a construction company and they use Hansen, uh, which is a concrete supplier for their concrete needs. Uh, they make their orders by phone. They call it dispatch line. Turns out that since 2009, this dispatch line. Well, hold on there, partner. Before you even get to that, apparently NEI and Hansen had a prior lawsuit between them over something to do with an overbilling or a claimed invoice or something like that, which ultimately I think got settled, right? Yeah, and sure, yeah, let's let's really give it some context then. Uh, they have a billing dispute, the case gets settled, it's resolved. Not sure how it's resolved, but it's resolved. But after it's settled? But, well, during the litigation, during that billing dispute litigation, NEI discovers that Hansen was recording conversations that were being had on their dispatch line. Okay, but they were recording the conversations, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not upholding what they did with respect to recording the conversations, but there was a recorded message that said, this call may be monitored for quality assurance. That's right. How was that? That's very good. And it, you didn't say this call may be recorded for quality. No, insurance. because that that's came an important after factor. they got sued. That's right. After they got sued, yep. they changed the message to be something along the lines of this call may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance purposes. Right. So before they put that recording language in the admonition, um, NEI sued Hansen again after they had settled their billing dispute, this time under California's uh, CIPA, California's Invasion of Privacy Act. As a class action. As a class action. So just right. this is the epitome of petty. Um, so they settle one dispute and they sue him for recording conversation. And they see... Well, they sue him in a class action, so it's beyond, on behalf of all people. And initially, yep. the, the district court, this is a federal district court case, the district court reviewed the case and they said, hey, there's predominance here, which means the um, individual claims predominate over the class claim, individual people and refused to certify it. Then they filed a motion to reconsider and provided new evidence regarding the timing of recordings. And then based upon that, the district court certified the case. And then- And then what happened? They came, then the defendant came back and provided nine declarations from customers who had actual knowledge of the recording, saying they weren't deceived by the recording. And then the court decertified the case, and from that, the appeal flowed. Yep. The the decertification came because there's no commonality, there's no predominance. And- um, and most importantly, that there's no standing. Under a case, a United States Supreme Court case that we've talked about before called Spokio, Spokio. meaning that in order to have an Article Three judge, meaning a federal district court judge, Sean, Article Three of the United States Constitution, right. in order to have the judge consider a case, there has to be an actual controversy. And there was no actual controversy here because there was no harm, despite the fact that California law has what? A $5,000 per violation statutory damages clause in that uh, Invasion of Privacy Act. Right. So um, they, the, the Ninth Circuit takes this case, and they start looking at the Article Three standing issue. They start looking at the Spokio case. They start looking at that. But then they find one important fact that happened in the court below. The court below found that there was no standing, that this plaintiff had no standing. The class representative and named plaintiff had no standing. And they say everything else is moot. 
they originally had a number of other class representatives. They dismissed them out of the case. They were going with one class yep. representative. And the court, district court found that class representative had no, no specific standing. standing himself. That's right. And the appeal was, and this might be bad lawyering, appeal was only as to the decertification order. It wasn't as to the question of standing, and they're not asking this court, the Court of Appeal, to reconsider the question of standing. So they kind of, th- there's no threshold to get past here, or the, the, the threshold question of standing is not met. And therefore, uh, the decertification gets upheld. NEI tries to rely on two exceptions to the mootness doctrine because the Court of Appeal said this is all moot now. There's no standing. Since there's no standing, you didn't appeal the standing. We don't reach the standing. They might have reached a different result on the standing. But they try to argue there's an exception to the mootness doctrine. So those two exceptions to the mootness doctrine are that um, when someone still has a personal stake in the outcome of the litigation, even though he doesn't have standing, or alternatively, if the claim is, quote, capable of repetition yet evading review, meaning plaintiff had a claim, defendant does something to make it go away, but it can happen all over again. Um, But the Court of Appeal said, you had no standing to begin with, so it's not like you lost standing and these mootness exceptions apply. Those mootness exceptions are very difficult. I mean, if you're relying on a mootness, if you're relying on a mootness, exception in uh, an appellate court, good luck. I mean, it's it's a tough road to hoe. But interestingly, did you know that Roe v. Wade is based on an exception of the mootness doctrine? I didn't know that. Yes. I didn't know that. That's an interesting fact. All right. Uh, our next case? Next case is Esparza versus Safeway, a California case that has to do with UCL claims in an employment case. So the plaintiffs here uh, are former Safeway employees. Turns out that Safeway has a no premium wages policy. They have a policy where they don't pay uh, premium wages, allegedly, uh, for missed meal breaks. And uh, these plaintiffs bring a, bring a claim with two causes of action, uh, one under the unfair competition law, the UCL, and another under the PAGA, the Private Attorney General Act. So let's cover the UCL issue first. Um, UCL typically allows damages in the form of restitution, and the only form of damages sought here by these plaintiffs was restitution. And uh, the defendant here filed an MSJ, argued that there's no triable uh, issue of fact because plaintiffs cannot prove up their damages of restitution. What did the plaintiff here try to do in order to prove up their damages claim? Well, it's interesting, and and I know the judge, the, the Superior Court, then Superior Court Judge Wiley, uh, who I've had cases in front of now, a uh, court of appeal, second district court of appeal judge, justice, um, has brought up this issue before about there has to be specific proof required by California law to be able to demonstrate how you're going to show that individual members of the class were um, harmed. So in these meal break cases, it's interesting because meal breaks are unpaid time, but you're entitled to that unpaid time. And if you don't get it and you want it, you're entitled to a penalty payment, right? Premium. Yeah. A premium, right. Yeah. And in this case, in, in order to show that the class was harmed, the plaintiff's lawyers took, you know, albeit creative, but obviously from the Superior Court and from the Court of Appeal, wrong approach to trying to establish what the restitution should have been. And here's, here's what the expert did. The expert said, effectively, what you should have done is if they have job offers from both Safeway and a competitor, the jobs at Safeway and competitor are exactly the same, except that Safeway has no premium wage policy and the competitor has a premium wage policy. 
And if the workers had known, they would have gone work for the competitor and they would have gotten the premium wage policy. Interesting issue, but then they looked at a case called Sargon. Uh, I think it's Sargon versus USC. And in that case, the court has the gatekeeper role. The gatekeeper here, the trial court, looked at this and said, that's just not supported by the law. It's, it's sort of coming up with a, an, an imaginary theory. I think at one point in here, the Court of Appeal um, referred to it as an invented value, market value approach uh, that doesn't have any, um, any standing in law. Right. I, I get what the expert here was trying to do or the plaintiff here, plaintiff's counsel was trying to do, try to prove up the the difference in value between working for Safeway versus working for another company, even if you don't quantify exactly how much in premium uh, premium wages or penalties you're owed. But it's you can't put a number figure on this. If, the, if you had done a statistical analysis and did a sampling and maybe gotten records and put a dollar amount on it, I think they'd have a much better shot at showing that there were damages. But over here doing this kind of pie-in-the-sky type of analysis that there's some opportunity costs that these employees are giving up by working for Safeway versus working for a competitor, while in theory I, I understand it, it, it doesn't put numbers on the board. But it is a real very serious problem because yeah. if the employer in these cases doesn't maintain um, accurate records about why or how somebody missed a meal break, and you just show that they didn't they they didn't take their meal break, and there could be a dozen reasons for that. And the employer has all the control over that in its possession. It seems fundamentally unfair to then put the class to the test of having to show that each meal break was missed as opposed to voluntarily skipped. Yeah. Uh, so so I think that's something that's not so super clear in California law, and we've had that issue before. And I agree that the burden shouldn't shift to the employees to show, well, you should have kept time, and that's how I'd be able to prove it. I think by not tracking that time, the employer is taking the risk, and, and they should have to suffer the consequences of it because they have control over it, like you mentioned. Yeah, and you know, there seems like there should be a better way in these cases rather than just going forward with a novel theory like this and putting, you know, frankly, all of it on black and hoping that the wheel comes up in your favor, to use a Vegas expression. Uh, it seems like there should be a better way of going to the court early and saying, this is the way we want to put the case on. Is this going to be sufficient? And do the gatekeeping that way as opposed to doing it and then losing everything based right. upon that. Because if you do it and the court says, no, we won't accept that, then maybe you go the other route of trying to do some statistical analysis, which was what I was thinking about when I read this case was maybe a statistical analysis. It could have been very expensive. There were a lot of employees. And what is outrageous about this case, and you mentioned it earlier well, before we started this, was Safeway admitted that it right. didn't provide right. the they meal breaks. Policy. They admitted it, it. It's not that it's in practice. When you look at the numbers, you can see that sometimes they don't pay. Pro- yeah, we no, did that. policy. Yeah, we did that. Yeah, we did that. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, we they, did that. We do we do that. We always well, do that. Well, they stopped. Yeah, They've right, since right, stopped, right, right, but right. this goes all the way back to yeah. 2007 yeah. after the Brinker yeah. decision, they stopped. That, it's like that was our policy. You the know, last that, part of this case is the PAGA claim, the private attorney general claim. One-year statute, they just missed the one year. They were trying to use the relation back doctrine to get it. Yeah, and the court struck it because it wasn't timely. So, again, this is always – anytime it comes to deadlines – we always tell everyone, be careful. you got to make sure that you timely file these things. There's a notice requirement of the law under PAGA, and the notice has to be within one year. And if you don't get it within one year, if they change their practices, if they change their practices on January 1st of 2018, for example, and you send your letter on January 2nd of 2019 – 
according to this case and according to other decisional authority, you're just too late. It's what too these late. lawyers tried to do cleverly, I mean, smartly, was they tried to use uh, a relation back doctrine to say that it goes back to the original date of the claim. But the court said, nope, there's a notice requirement. The notice requirement is jurisdictional. What does that mean, Chuck? That means that the court cannot have jurisdiction over that claim unless you comply strictly with that notice requirement. Well, we made it all the way through with one case remaining, and you haven't made fun of my age yet. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. The opportunity hasn't come up. Okay. So let's see if the opportunity comes up in our last case today. That's LaSalle versus Vogel. I have a feeling it might come up. This case is hugely entertaining and at the same time hugely sad. But it's entertaining because it's one of the best written appellate decisions I've read in years. It comes out of the 4th DCA. Uh, It's an outstanding decision, and it was written by uh, Justice Bedsworth of the 4th DCA out of Orange County. And the basic facts here, Shant, are uh, involve a default being taken against a lawyer for legal malpractice. Yeah, a lawyer represented a former client in the client's dissolution of uh, a marriage or a domestic partnership. Um, the client there uh, had a bad outcome in the underlying case, and she blamed the lawyer for it and then sued the lawyer for malpractice. Just a, a couple of days, I think it was maybe three days after uh, the lawyer had to respond to the malpractice complaint, Um, the former client's new lawyer contacted uh, the lawyer and said, hey, your answer is past due or your response of pleading is past due. Um, you got to do it by by Monday or it's going to be too late or something. And on Monday, uh, the lawyer called the former client's new lawyer and said, hey, I need more time. I need more time. And by then it was too late, I guess, by that self-imposed deadline or the kind of arbitrary deadline. And the client went in and sought a default and got a default, ultimately. Um, the lawyer opposed the request for a default or a motion for a default uh, by using Section 473 of the Code of Civil Procedure, which is a section that allows for relief from default or uh, to set aside a default. However... The lawyer, I guess, made the mistake of failing to sort of fall on her sword and say that uh, it was a mistake on the part of the lawyer. Instead, just explained the circumstances, gave a albeit valid excuse in a number of circumstances that might merit it. But by not falling on her sword, uh, the court did not have to, was not required to set aside the default. Because if you fall on your sword and say, this was a mistake, inadvertent mistake, we're very sorry, but it's the lawyer's fault. Um, the court is required. It's mandatory relief from default. And the lawyer here failed to do that. And ultimately, the default was entered, and there was a million-dollar default Million-dollar judgment. judgment. Million-dollar right. judgment against the lawyer in this legal malpractice case because this issue. So here's some of the things that the Court of Appeals said, and feel free to chime in, chant with your own favorite. Sure. The, the Court of Appeal, first of all, talked about the uh, dismissal um, for uh, failure to prosecute as a principle that um, has somehow become the Marie Celeste of California law, a ghost ship reported by a few hardy souls by doubted by most people familiar with the area to which it's been reported, then goes on to say that this case itself deals with what our profession has come unmoored from its honorable commitment to the ideal expressed. Um, we urge a return to professionalism. The court went then on to say and to point out 
that um, that everyone nowadays in litigation has encountered dilatory tactics. They take a review of the last 30 or 40 years of this slide into um, what they refer to as the sort of dismay or decay of, of the profession of law. They point out that in a particular case going back to 2002, um, they were trying to rain lawyers in, the courts were trying to rein lawyers in in a case where a lawyer had um, written a letter that said, I plan on disseminating your little letter as to as many referring counsel as possible, you diminutive shit, and then ends the letter with the popular cliche, quote, see you in court, goes on to talk about scorched earth tactics. The court says, you've got to stop this. It's gotten so bad that the California State Bar amended the new oath that lawyers take to add a civility requirement. Uh, And then they go on to talk about this specific case that say warning and notice of taking a default by email is possibly the worst way possible because email gets trapped in people's spam filters. It disappears. It isn't. Um, effective. It may have been part of a game to yeah, act they, they unreasonably. They spend around before they get into the substance of this case. They spend like five, five pages talking about you know their their dismay and and what they've seen happening in terms of you know the the decay in civility and the breakdown in communication. And then they lawyers. go. Then they look at discretionary dismissals and how right. um, that is in and of itself questionable. They talk about this case, if it had actually gone to trial as opposed to been a default, it would have been a case within a case. You would have had to prove not only that the lawyer did something wrong, but that the underlying case could have been won. Uh, They then go on to talk about due process and that you have to give notice that's reasonably calculated to reach the, the, um, the party. And then they talk about a number of factors um, about this not setting aside the default. Right, and um, those factors are from 473, or they arise out of uh, Section 473, and the court ultimately says that they sympathize with the court below uh, and with opposing counsel. But not really. But but not really, because they Because say they, it was a rush to get a default entered. And I know, on the one hand, the frustration thing is when you're trying to get a default entered. But on the other hand, there is this thing called the Constitution of the United States of America, and there is due process, and there's the notion of fairness, and there's the notion of how we deal with each other. And um, they finish the opinion by saying, Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger long ago observed, quote, lawyers who know how to think but have not learned how to behave are a menace and a liability. And it is frustrating for lawyers who try to do the right thing, and this case, even they even went so far as to talk about the lawyer who had the default entered against her, submitted a declaration, which you said one of the lessons learned is fall on your sword and say, I made a mistake, yeah. because the minute you say that, the court has no discretion. Right. And it's not like some admission of liability uh, to, to fall on your sword. You, you explain that this is excusable neglect or it's inadvertent error. So there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I screwed up here. Um, please give me some relief. And at that point, that makes the relief mandatory. So this could have all been avoided, potentially, if the lower court bought it. And then they even quote some of the, the language that the lawyer who had the default entered against her 
said. She said that she herself had been involved, I think, in a, her own family law matter with her husband, right. had a child custody issue, had her own problems. She could have added, as a result of all of this, I was unable to respond in time, and this is my fault, and I'll make sure to comply. And you don't even have to apologize. You just explain that it's uh, inadvertent error on your part. by failing So on the one it. hand, you get... Um, the frustration that lawyers feel when they're trying to do their job and they're trying to move a case forward and they don't get responsiveness, they don't get an answer. You gotta, you if you're on the receiving end of that, you gotta do something. On the other hand, if you're the one trying to insert a default, you're trying to take an aggressive position like that. Make sure you've dotted all your eyes, crossed all your t's, and been as professional as possible because courts are looking for a way to give somebody who's on the losing end of a default a way out. Right. Don't don't rely on gotchas and things like that. There's no such thing as winning on a gotcha here. Um, it's, it's a default. And like you said, the Constitution protects people that have uh, claims being asserted against them, and you need to really prove it up. And it's reserved for situations where people are really not complying with their obligations under the law. And this opinion, I think, that is a good reminder of you know all the requirements for civility and it's a, it's a good call to you know, have people participate in um, being civil with you. So that's all, that's all we got for you today. We're coming to you live from the ghost ship Marie Celeste. Yeah, that's really clever. What is that a reference to? You don't know what the ghost ship no, is? Okay, no. you take some time afterwards. Okay, but, but what I found interesting in this opinion was I love any opinion that starts with citing things that aren't necessarily cases. And they, this case starts with citing um, a line from Hamlet. And it says Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 4. And I was going to say, did you see that originally when it first came out? With Bill? Yeah, with Bill Shakespeare, yeah. yeah. Did you so see that? So what's the line, Sean? So the line is, it's, it, so it's talking about the uh, CCP section that says that uh, all parties shall cooperate in bringing the action to trial. And the line is, this section's adjuration to civility and cooperation, quote, is a custom more honored in the breach than in the observance. So that's a good way to end today. Uh, we appreciate you listening to Civil Action. We try to bring these to you each week. If you've got specific cases you want to talk to us about, you'd like to ask us about, our firm's always interested. We're interested in helping other lawyers with your cases, whether you bring us into your case or not. We're interested in working with you. We're also interested in your feedback. So we appreciate you listening. And you can find us online at kbklawyers.com or on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP.